I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today we're talking about how to get hired as an application scientist or application specialist. This is one of the most popular positions that PhDs are getting into right now and industry demand for them is peaking, uh, especially in November and December. Now this overall uh, is the number one position that PhDs get hired into. That's a non-bench position. So if you take away all of the R&D positions, all of the positions that require you to work in a lab or similar, depending on if you have a life science or physical science or engineering or social science PhD, this position is number one. Yet, most PhDs do not understand it, uh, and they really don't even consider it until somebody contacts them about this role. So if you learn about this role, if you put it on your radar and you start targeting it, it's one of the fastest ways to get hired. It's also the position that we recommend you get into if you're not sure which industry position is right for you. Why is that? Because it's the easiest position to leave. That's right. You can transition from this position into R&D, into uh, marketing. You can transition into uh, regulatory affairs, all other types of positions. It's a known transitory position by industry professionals. So when they hire you into it, they're okay with helping you develop into other departments. So we're going to jump in. We're going to talk to somebody who's been in this role previously, who has worked as an application scientist, and then we're going to bring on uh, Alex Wojcik to tell us specifically about this role, and her, her and I are going to have a conversation about it because I've worked in this role as well. So let's jump in. A couple of application scientists. One will stay with us. So I'm going to bring on Alex now, and I'm going to bring on Carolyn. And we're going to talk a little bit about the application scientist role. I'll pitch into a little bit since I've worked in the role. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, Alex. Hi, Isaiah. How are you? There we go. All right. I can hear you both. Yeah, thanks for joining. And I, I really appreciate both of you being on. You know, we have a lot of PhDs who are interested in this role and maybe understand it a bit, but not completely. I have to admit, I didn't really understand it completely either. Um, so what do you love about this role? I guess that's, that's where I want to start. Like if you had to talk about it now that you're on the other side, what are the things that you really enjoy about it, both in terms of being able to stay close to you know, the science or the technical side of what you do, but also getting to expand your business experience and, and work with different types of people? That's kind of where I, what I wanted to touch on. And I'll start with you, Carolyn. So I like being able to support the product that I'm an expert in and I'm able to support that post-sale and then the people that I work with, I'm able to make a big difference because they integrate the product after the sale. I can also refer for sales and I'm able to see a big difference in the utilization of it. The big problem with our company is the people purchase the product, but don't use it. So I'm a key piece in customer satisfaction and integration. Yeah. And what I liked about it was just like you said, kind of being that conduit between the two. Like I love going back and you're respected by the company because you have inside information from the people using the product, right? So they're kind of hanging on your words uh, in terms of, okay, well, they say that they're confused by this user interface or this doesn't make sense with their experiments. There's not the, you know, they wish they could do it with these tubes or whatever you're supporting, right? Um, and then on the other side, you get to go into the field, right? And this could be done, I mean, virtually now, but in person too. And you get to work with them to understand their research first. So you get to learn a lot of cool things, but you're also seen as the expert to them because you work for the company that produces the product, as you say. And the product, you know, that's an industry term for all, all of you. It's just like the instruments or the kits or the reagents, the software you're using in the lab or otherwise. I mean, really even just the teaching materials. Um, so I'll stay with you, Carolyn. I know you're busy and just volunteering to be here. So thank you. Um, so after you transitioned into the role, um, what was better than you expected after getting into the application scientist role? Cause I know it, any role in industry is kind of a black box for most of us who have never worked in industry. So what was, 
better than you thought it would be for the application scientist role specifically and for industry overall? For industry overall, first of all, I get a lot more respect and value and appreciation than in academia. Hmm. So I feel like my academic background has finally paid off, which hmm. it didn't before. And for application scientists, I feel like I can ha still have that independence. I think some people transitioning out of academia are afraid that they're going to lose their academic freedom, which is very valued. But I still have a lot of independence. We do go into the field. I have my own geographic area. And on Zoom or in person, it's just me. And I'm responsible for representing that product. And like you said, I take back the feedback to R&D and also to the sales team. And that's very valuable with my research background. Yeah. And, and I love that you still get to leverage that. So thank you, Carolyn, for being with us. Really appreciate you being on. And Alex, even though you'll be staying with us, I want to ask you the same question. You know, what do you really enjoy about the role and uh, what's better than you thought it would be before you started? So just like Carolyn, I really love being that go-between between the customer and the company and doing everything we can to, you know, get the customer to use the instrument and, you know, of course, by reagents and things like that. But on top of that, one of my favorite things is I am a scientist at the end of the day, and I love seeing all of the super cool things that our instrument is contributing to science. So um, seeing the new papers coming out, posters coming out, um, attending webinars that our company is putting on. Um, just seeing like all of the wide variety of different um, sectors of science mm -hmm. that we're reaching into. So just seeing science move forward because of our instrument is just mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. And, and I think for a lot of you, that's what you'll enjoy is that development part. We don't get to do any development uh, in academia. It's all just basic research. So being able to see the research translated into something that helps people, whether it's a new instrument, a reagent, an added feature, software, et cetera, and has an impact on humanity, an impact on other uh, clinical research or basic research or whatever to produce something is pretty amazing. And uh, that was one of the most fulfilling parts for me too. You know, the team and I, uh, you know, here at Cheeky Scientists, we're looking over a lot of the internal data and more than any other career track, the PhDs who come in say that application scientist is their first or second choice, excuse me, over R&D. So out of all the non-bench positions, the application scientist role was their first or second choice. This was surprising. Uh, it, was, it was a big number. Um, so why do you think this is growing in popularity? And why do you think it's growing in industry, Alex? So a big reason why this might be is because you are using a lot of the exact same skills that you use during your PhD. We're collating data, getting it all together, trying to interpret it. And then you have the great result of seeing all of these things that are coming from your product and you don't have to be the one actually doing the research. So you can have these theoretical discussions with your customers about their processes and all of this and try to help them optimize but you are not at the bench yourself ever doing it. So I really enjoy the diversity of customers I have. And so um, the troubleshooting and all of those communication skills that you've built up during your PhD are really applicable to this position. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the market data too, this position is in demand. So for those of you that are curious, it's one of the best positions to get into if you don't know where to start in your job search and if you don't know which career path is right for you. Because honestly, most PhDs will never know which exact career path in an industry is right for them. The application scientist role is a great transition point because you come in, you make an incredible salary, and you get to stay close to research without having to do bench work. And from an application scientist or application specialist or engineer role, you're not frozen or siloed off. You're connecting with all different departments. It's very similar uh, in that respect to like a project management role. You're connected to all these different departments. You get exposure to them, and it's very easy for you to transition back to R&D, on to business development, uh, on to project management, on to whatever you want to do. So you get broad exposure in industry, and then you can finalize right after you are actually in industry which career path long-term might be right for you. So it's an incredible position overall, but certainly for those of you who are undecided on which position uh, is right for you. You can get into this very easily, too comparatively to other roles. It's really, you can. 
you know, a lot of other roles have very specific types of tests, et cetera, you have to do, or you have to gain a lot of other knowledge here. If you gain some business knowledge, which is one of the reasons we're giving you scientist MBA today, and you just leverage your technical knowledge to a new type of person, right? Uh, Non-technical people, you can get into this role. You just have to follow the right sequence, you know, learn about where the jobs are, have access to a network and that's it. But it's definitely growing. It's definitely in demand. A lot of you are invisible, right? Or you don't know where to look for the roles. So you might think, well, that can't be true, but it absolutely is. And uh, just in terms of the raw numbers, like if you look at how many different roles are out there overall, what is the, one of the largest chunks, the largest for non-bench positions by far, application scientist, application specialist. Okay, so what is an application scientist? If you're explaining it to some of the people here who just like the job title, you know, that's why they came and they have no idea what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, so this role really is a go-between between the customer that has already purchased the product, so you don't directly usually interfere with sales or do anything with sales, and the company itself. So sometimes you will do um, trainings and installs and be a tech support, and you're that go-between. You're that one contact for the customer And you're interfacing then with the rest of your team, the rest of the company to see any other ways that you can support that customer, make them successful with your product. Yeah. And I I think there's a, there's more diversity here than you might expect, which is, you know, what our other panelists mentioned that you can support a wide range of products. Look around you right now in the lab or as your TA or think back to when you were any of those training materials, any of those uh, kits, reagents, et cetera, you can teach others how to use. And it's like teaching somebody uh, from both the, the product side, the development side, but also the research side, the science side. And that's what's exciting because then you get to see have, have an impact. I know a lot of you have been running like your one millionth gel, right? I'm a life scientist, so that's how I relate everything. But it could be for whatever for you. You could be doing some algorithm, et cetera. And you're like, what am I doing? I'm having no impact. And we all, as our as PhDs, wanted to have an impact. So here you get to go immediately in, very little training required because you're just supporting the research behind something. You'll get trained on development and on whatever uh, product or the instruments and whatever's allowing the research to be done. But then you get to jump in and you get to have a lot of autonomy. You get to learn, you get to interact with so many people. And there's a lot of freedom. That's a big thing for PhDs, right? We think we're going to go into industry and we're going to be locked down into doing one thing and they could take everything away from us or change our research. But here you have so much freedom and they're not going to change things right away because those instruments, the the reagents, the kits, the software, everything, that's like what the company's built around. So they're not just going to say, hey, we're closing the company down. That's what they'd have to say. It's not like experimental research where they're, they're in the beginning stages and they shut it all down. So it's a great role where you can have that kind of certainty, that kind of freedom without the fear of loss. So going beyond what is an application scientist, why are they valuable? Why would the, let's say you go into a Pfizer to help them apply an instrument to their research. Why are you valuable to the other companies? So you are so valuable in, I mean, we all do this every day, troubleshooting. So we have learned how to be professional troubleshooters and that is you know, perfect for this role. So usually you go in and there's a problem, you start at the very bottom. Did you turn it off and turn it back on? And, you know, that fixes things in biotech just as frequently as, you know, your personal computer at home. Um, And then you start with the cords and these other things that are super simple before you start trying to get into the big bits of the instrument or the software that you're supporting. So these troubleshooting skills that you have of interpreting your results and seeing what things might not have gone properly are exactly what you need because you need to be able to be independent. As Isaiah said, you need to be able to work flexibly. So sometimes you go to a customer site and you go there for one problem, but then you realize they have this other problem that is much bigger and it's actually causing this smaller problem that they're currently seeing. So you have to be very flexible. You don't have to know everything. Mm -hmm. Um, Many times I have had to call my team and say, hey, you know, we're having this issue. I've done X, Y, and Z troubleshooting. What are the next steps? 
So you're always going to have that team to rely on, but you are very independent. And the longer you're out of role, the better that you can just do it on your own and you don't have to rely on other people. So PhDs are also so independent that, you know, sometimes we don't want to base our schedule on someone else. And especially if you have a field-based position, you make your schedule as long as your customers are happy. Nobody really cares what your schedule is. Yeah, exactly. And I think the autonomy is a, a huge value add. And it's something I know a lot of you have probably heard, oh, if you leave your PhD off your resume, you're more likely to get hired, right? Because a PhD means you're too independent uh, or something similar. It's not true, especially for the application scientist role. They want you uh, to be autonomous. They want you to be able to figure out problems and to act as that conduit. So if, you're, if you want to stay close to science, uh, if you want to... Uh, stay close to what you learn, the technical side, you just don't want to be pushing a pipette or working at the bench, incredible role for you. And you'll get massive exposure to business without being expected to know everything about business right away. You get to come in there and they're going to lean on you for your technical expertise and teach you business. It is a great transition role, I'm telling you. And, and PhDs are the ones that they look for to it. If you don't know where to start or which role is right for you, this is the one because it's highly in demand just by the pure raw numbers. It'll be the easiest for you to transition into, pays very well, allows you to work autonomously, and allows you to transition into multiple different roles. We'll show this at the end. And it's highly valuable. It's not just some, you're not doing technical support. It's not that at all. You're actually solving research problems. You're going in like the, you know, the senior PI. Or for us, like when I was doing research, there was a dean that would just kind of pop into any lab meeting that they wanted to or any seminar and kind of sit in the back and learn everything about whatever research was said, ask questions, troubleshoot, solve problems. That's you, but you'll be paid more than the dean or you'll be paid more than the PI. That's what you get to do. You get to go into all these different sites and we're talking incredible companies. I worked for a medical software company and I got to go into, they had partnerships with Apple, Pfizer. Uh, again, what I mentioned, Lily's Pharmaceuticals, but a lot of the, the Merck's, the Johnson and Johnson's and you're like, I can't believe I'm here at Johnson and Johnson right now. And they brought me in and they're like their team, their entire team's listening to me talk about how to apply this research. And I get to see their data. It's, it's a really, really uh, fun role to be into lots of conferences. Obviously a lot of them are virtual. Now you're not required to travel if you don't want to, of course, during the pandemic. Um, but it's still in demand despite the pandemic, which I think is really important to mention. A lot of these key transferable skills we've been talking about, problem solving, flexibility, business acumen. That's a big one. It's why we're including Scientist MBA today. Uh, time management, understanding the science, of course, you have those skills. But let's talk about the diversity a bit more. I think a lot of people here don't understand beyond what I've said, instruments, reagents, software, you know, et cetera. What are some of the things that you have to balance? Like, I, you know, you, you're juggling the, whatever the product is that you have to support, you're juggling the company you work for, and then you're juggling the, the businesses that are the customers. Can you talk about these three things? Yeah, definitely. So um, the customers themselves will just start, you know, at the top and work our way around. Um, your employer can be anywhere from a small startup to a medium size to one of the large corporations. And um, in order to figure out where you think you would fit, you just have to take some time definitely doing some informational interviewing with people at these different size companies. Um, for example, startups tend to be, everybody's wearing about 20 different hats and you have to be very flexible and just be willing to just dig your feet in and solve the problem. Medium size kind of have a little bit more structure to them, but it's still very free for all in some parts of the company because they're still forming. And then the big established companies you know, like your Pfizer, Genentech, Thermo Fisher, um, all of these, you would have a very structured organization and very strict duties that you have. So it's really up to your comfort level and how much do you want to kind of figure things out on your own versus how much do you want to be told, this is what I want to do. Um, and then you can support a lot of different instrumentation and reagents. So it can be um, an instrument, a physical instrument. It could be, you know, like the DNA prep kit 
You could be supporting some sort of technology right now. Genetic sequencing, obviously, is a really big thing. So you don't even have to have done your PhD in wet lab. You could have done it in computer science, and maybe they need someone doing a lot of coding and things like that. So that's a really big thing that's going on right now. Mm. So um, I've seen a lot of people move into those, and those uh, positions are getting uh, snatched up pretty quickly, especially here in the Bay Area. Yeah, hiring and is exploding right now, and I think a lot of of you who are attending may maybe don't realize that uh, the last two months of the year are the high is where the highest levels of hiring occur. We just broke our record at Cheeky Scientist last month for the most monthly hires we've ever seen. And this is very common. And I think Alex can attest to this because in January, February, it's like dead hiring. Nobody hires because it's when all the big kickoff corporate strategy events are. And that's when all the training happens and they want to get all their hires done before that happens in Jan and Feb. So you really don't see it start to come up till mid-March at the soonest. Companies are hiring big right now. Can you just talk about that just for a second, Alex? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that in academia. They think, oh, it's time to slow down, time to check out, uh, not, not working yeah, anything for my job search. Definitely. So I actually changed jobs during the pandemic. I was hired at a new company in August this past year. Um, they actually lifted their hiring freeze just so that they could hire me. So if you are the person for that role, the company is going to pay you because they still want to sell their product. And if their product is just sitting at a customer site, it's not installed, the customer hasn't been trained, they're not going to sell reagents. So they need you there. Um, I've been doing a lot of traveling. Of course, I'm staying safe and all of that. But, you know, there really hasn't been any restriction on, you know, me during this transition period that I'm having. So hiring is still up. We just expanded our team to two more people at this company. And I always see more positions for application scientist roles. And I'm still getting contacted by recruiters right. saying, hey, we have this application scientist role. Do you want this one? Do you want this one? And I say, no, I'm happy with what I do. So it's um, extremely popular. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very popular. And, you know, if you just market yourself the best way possible with highlighting your communication skills and showing how much flexibility you have, but also that you do have technical knowledge and you know how to approach things, um, you are a shoe in for any of these positions. Yeah. And it just comes down to having the right knowledge and the right network. Most of you can't find the jobs because we are still in a recession and word of mouth matters. Recruiters, hiring managers, they contact people who are currently working in industry like Alex, uh, like the other people in application scientist roles, like our panelists uh, who are in the application scientist assembly. When they get contacted, they don't want that role. Guess where they post it? In the application scientist assembly private group. That's why the private group is there. Inside information really matters. Now, for a lot of you, you need to get hired in the next couple of months or you want to. In fact, type in two months if you would love to get hired before the end of the year, because that's how much time you have left, actually a little less than two months. And I know there's a lot of you here, but you can't keep doing the same thing you've been doing if you need to get hired in two months. If you need to get hired in six months, type in six months. Same thing. That is not a lot of time if you're seeking a job that pays on average above $80,000, in many cases above $90,000. Within my first year, I was paid above $100,000 in my application scientist role. All of this is possible depending on your path and what you do and your training. You need inside information so you can show yourself as somebody who has business acumen, right? That's why we're giving you scientist MBA, but also can show yourself as being certified to work as an application scientist. You've gone through some training. You can use that as leverage when they ask you, why should I hire you if you have no industry experience? Oh, I've been trained by industry leaders working in application scientist positions who have PhDs. Here's my board-backed certificate. So that's we know all of this, and that's why we put all of this into uh, this program for you. Now, no matter what your background is, you have to know you can get into any role. I got into a medical software application scientist role working on clinical data when I had no clinical experience. I had no software experience, no computer programming, et cetera, no development, but I had to do a lot of uh, help with the web development side. And it was a software as a service is what they call it now. Um, you can do it too. You know, Alex, maybe talk a little bit about that, what you see people coming in from different backgrounds to support different types of products. 
Yeah, you don't need a certain background to be able to support certain products. So if you're only in life sciences and that's where your background is, you don't necessarily have to have, you know, extensive programming experience if you want a software position. Mm -hmm. You actually already having that drive to want to learn it and having that science background will help you code more efficiently if that's something that you're looking for. Um, I personally, the two jobs that I have had thus far had never seen the instrument before. Um, and I just, you know, kind of said, well, I'll figure it out. And they were fine with that. My current company does a lot of IHC and immuno-oncology work. And I had no experience with either of those things. Mm -hmm. And I still managed to get hired for that position. So you don't have to know. You just need to know where your limits are. And you have to be fine in an interview saying, you know, I don't really know that, but I can look into it and get back to you and then actually get back to them during the interview process. Mm. And so that shows that you're willing to learn, put the time in to get yourself up to where your coworkers are. And just showing that drive and motivation for the company will get you further than even if someone who did know, but they just weren't motivated for the position. So you don't have to have the background I mean, it's nice. It is, you know, a step up that you can talk about it. You can talk about different troubleshooting things that you've done with the instrument or the software before, but it's not necessarily required. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's not required at all because you all have a doctor of philosophy or you will be getting one. That's the ability to uh, ascertain knowledge and knowledge itself. That's what a doctor of philosophy, what philosophy means. So you're you're quite literally a doctor of learning and they know this. You can process information faster. You can produce a larger volume of work written or otherwise. You can work harder. You have better work ethic. Um, this is a lot of stuff we'll train you to put on your resumes, your LinkedIn profiles for application scientist positions. Now, the sticking points that we help you overcome in these programs are not understanding the role, the different types of roles, how do you communicate to different types of people, technical and non-technical? Right? That's, those are the two, broadly speaking, you'll be communicating with both on your own teams and then on the teams you're going into. You're going to be working in research and you'll have to work with highly technical people to help them do their research on, let's say, an instrument. But then you'll have business executives coming in, et cetera, that might ask you more higher level business acumen questions about how to scale the usage of that instrument as a simple example. If you don't have an understanding of business overall, you're going to struggle in this area. If you can't speak about that, how you would communicate differently to different types of people, you're going to struggle even during the interview process. We train you on that in programs. Uh, and not having industry experience, which, again, we give you leverage against that uh, objection from employers by giving you this training backed by a board of application scientists. So um, some, we're looking at some myths here, Alex. You know, it's not a traditional sales role. It is an R&D role, right? But uh, it's not an R&D role. Excuse me. These are myths. Uh, you don't get to use your science and it doesn't value skill sets. I think we've covered most of these, but maybe talk about how it's not an R&D role, right? You're not at the bench doing stuff, but you did, do get to communicate and have to communicate very closely with R&D because it's, is, it's an innovative role. Can you talk about that? I think it's an important point. Yeah, definitely. So R&D is research and development. So uh, the application scientists are aware of the research and development that are going on in the company, but we're not the ones actually performing it. We're the ones in the field gathering feedback from customers about things that they would like to see, things that work really well, things that maybe even our R&D team hasn't even thought of putting into future versions of the software or products or things like that. So this is another instance where the application scientist is a go-between between the customer and instead of, you know, the rest of the team. Here we're going directly to R&D and saying, wow, we've heard a lot of customers complaining about this thing or they really like this other thing. Can we improve, you know, X, Y, and Z? And so then you get to take part in the development of the product, but you don't physically do any of the testing or any of the internal validations or running any of the experiments, but you do get to see the fruits of your labor. Mm. Yeah. Well said. So it's not a sales rep role, you know, and, and we bring this up because 
a lot of you might be thinking, oh, I don't want a technical support role or technical sales role. It's not that. You're like the professor they bring in to problem shoot, to solve the problems, to talk about the science, the research. Uh, you know, so sales reps really focused on the numbers. Here, you're focused on teaching, solving problems, supporting the researchers, the clinicians, the people that are uh, called the customers, but really they're the the people that you know best. That's why they're hiring PhDs into these roles because you can speak their language. You've been where they are. Like imagine going back into your own lab, training them on how to do their research better, training your PI and telling your PI what they're doing wrong and how they can use an instrument or some advanced technology to improve it. You're not selling it. It's after they purchase it or they want to integrate it into their research. That's what you get to do. Uh, and of course you get paid a lot more. Um, because of it. Uh, I think we we just covered the R&D differences. This is a nice graphic that shows where the overlap is. You get to stay, I mean, it's the dream role for those of you that are like, I'm sick of the bench, but I want to stay close to science or engineering or my specialty. Type in me if that sounds like you. You're like, I don't want to be in the bench or stuck in the lab anymore or pushing the pipette or, you know, counting the cells or doing that stuff. But I like science and research. I love learning new ideas, innovations. I'd love to help develop a better app or software feature or a better instrument or a better kit, some innovation that's going to improve research, improve diagnostics, improve treatment. If that's you, this is the role for you. And then again, I, I strongly believe if you don't know which role is right for you in industry, get into this role, work in it for a year, and then transition to any other role. Because from an application scientist role, it's the number one transition role for PhDs by far. We see it time and time again. Okay, quickly, 20 minutes left. If you want to get $400 off, few of you have taken advantage of this already. $400 off a lifetime membership to the application scientist assembly. And you will get scientist MBA for free. So you're getting... More, really more than 50% off for two programs today. Very special deal because it's the end of the year. You heard from Alex, the hiring is happening now for this role. If you don't know where to start in your job search or which career is right for you, start with this one. And with Scientist MBA, you'll be able to transition into any other after you get that initial industry experience. Okay, so let's talk about some of the broad categories of application scientists, Alex. Uh, TAS versus an FAS, what's the difference? Yeah, so um, I am personally an FAS, a field application scientist, and um, I believe this is what Carolyn is as well. So we're actually going to customer sites and doing things at customer sites. So we travel a lot. And when I say travel, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, on flights, overnight places. Sometimes you're just driving around your area if there's a high concentration of customers there. So, for example, I'm in the Bay Area. And I spend usually three weeks out of the month just driving to customers here. And then that fourth week is usually plane travel to somewhere else. Um, in contrast to the technical application scientist, this is someone who usually goes into an office. They do more of the support role. They um, answer phones, answer emails of customers calling in. But it's still very much a troubleshooting position. And it's still not associated with the sales role. So both application scientist position types are dealing with the customer after they've purchased. And so we're the scientists that they talk to. So they feel very comfortable talking to us because, you know, we're not trying to sell them something. We know our entire product repertoire. And so if there is something that we have that we think might enable their science to be a little bit better, we can just suggest it. And they're much more willing to take that on board than if a salesperson is telling them that. So that's the big differentiator between these two. Yeah, um, just recap it here with this table, if you want to walk us through. Yeah, definitely. So um, technical application scientists tend to have, you know, every day, like you go into the office, maybe you'll have a meeting, maybe you're just spending the day answering emails and phone calls and things like that. Whereas the field team is very flexible. We kind of have to be on our toes at all points of time. Because you can get to a customer, expect to do some simple troubleshooting, then realize someone needs to be trained. So we kind of just put everything into that one bucket and just get everything done while we're there. Um, even though we yes. work from home a little bit, usually I find working from home with a field position is busier than when I'm out in the field. 
because when you're at a customer site, you kind of ignore all of the emails coming in and deal with it at the end of the day. But if people know that you're at home, they're going to ask for things and you'll get put on projects and things like that. So it's counterintuitive, but I really enjoy the flexibility and all of the different things that um, come with the field role. Yeah. And, and this is important for the future, like post pandemic, you know, there's a lot of uh, application scientists around the world that are in the program and that we've talked to that uh, feel are technically field application scientists, but are not currently traveling. You know, they're doing call, a lot of call-ins. Uh, their role is still the same. By field, it means you're interacting very closely and directly with the people in the field, the different company, their research, et cetera. And a lot of that, you know, I see people at companies holding up iPads around the instruments that they get and working on uh, the research together. Uh, it's just about the communication flow of innovation. You need feedback from people using the product, whatever that is, or treatment or solution uh, in order to build new features and innovate new things. And so to be able to work for these exploding biotech companies and, uh, and you know, whether you work for the smaller biotech company or the midsize one that's growing fastly and that the larger companies are buying from, or you can work for the larger companies that have a bunch of different distribution lines of different products and they're selling it to researchers and clinics and hospitals and, and larger institutions. Um, either way, uh, there's a lot of variety in the type of role. You can find the exact company you want to work for, the exact field, and they're going to have application positions. It's why they're so abundant. Uh, field application scientists we've covered. So let's just go through the duties here again uh, between the two. I think you've covered these mostly. Let's talk about the part of the job that you do that's more of the business side, the administrative side. Like when you're communicating to people on your team in R&D, what kind of stuff would you bring them to help them improve the product? Or what kind of ways would you help them troubleshoot? What other yeah, departments do you work for? Sorry. Go ahead. So we have quite a few different meetings that we set up. So we have a whole North American meeting that everyone at the company goes to. Those are not as much troubleshooting as, you know, updates within the organization, structural changes, things like that. Um, and then we also have, you know, our field sales, sales and science team that kind of get together and talk about different customers, who's purchasing who is kind of slow to getting in the PO. So just keep an eye out. And then we have all the way down to our um, application scientist team where we can discuss specific troubleshooting issues we have had, things we're commonly seeing in the field, things that customers are commonly um, requesting. So our field team can get together and kind of chat about the things we've seen and maybe how we would troubleshoot some things. And then if there are still some unresolved questions after that, then, you know, we have every other week a meeting with the R&D team as well. So we can bring up things at that meeting. So we tend to have a lot of different meetings, but they're all so useful um, to kind of um, communicate everything that needs to be communicated to the proper channels. And then outside of that, everybody is, you know, welcome to email and things like that. Um, someone directly if something is urgently popping up. Mm. Thanks for doing that. So you've talked about some of the departments, the meetings, and there's this cycle that you're a big part of from product development, product commercialization, right? The customer has the product. So after the product gets purchased, if it's a new product, right? There's a section here where it goes to market, which is its own thing. And then the product sell. Uh, these different categories, most of you have no experience with. That's a big part of your training in the application scientist society, uh, excuse me, assembly. What is your role here specifically? What do you find yourself doing at the most practical level in between these fields, Alex? So the biggest thing to look at how much you're going to be interacting with these different parts of your organization is how large the organization is. So if you're a smaller company, um, you as an application scientist are going to have your hand in every one of these little buckets. But as the company grows, there are more specialized departments to deal with each of these. So in general, I, you know, application scientists don't really do much on the development side because that's usually happening before we join the company. But once the company gets large enough and is looking at upgrades and things like that, that's when we kind of put that feedback towards the R&D team 
and then they can make upgrades as they see fit. And then as far as commercializing a product, um, this is usually a marketing team, but they also like the input of the scientists because scientists know how to speak to other scientists. So sometimes we'll proofread some materials like pamphlets and emails that are going out to customers and just try to target it to, you know, whatever that customer is doing. And so once the customer has purchased the product, um, usually the sales team will communicate with you and you have your processes that you follow, depending on the roles that you have for um, this position. So sometimes if it's a more simple instrument, you'll do the installation, the training, the troubleshooting, everything. But if it's a more complex instrument, there might be someone who does the installation, someone who does the training, someone who does the troubleshooting. So all of these are important to think about um, when you're looking at different positions, seeing the specific roles that you'll be expected to follow. And then hopefully, you know, while we're on site or talking to customers, um, maybe there's another department that also wants to purchase this instrument because they want to use it, but, you know, they're in the building over and they don't want to have to keep coming back and forth. Hmm. So while you're on site or talking to customers, you can ask them about their needs. And you being the scientist, they're very willing to tell you, you know, oh, man, we really need another one of these. And then you can move it on to the sales team and then they can take care of that. Yeah. And again, if you're not sure, I know this is a lot of you. Maybe you've targeted a few roles. You've shown some interest, but you haven't dedicated yourself to a role. Guess what? You're never going to be able to do that without getting industry experience. You're never gonna know for certain if the industry role is right for you. That's the good news though. Industry is not like academia where it's like, okay, I'm getting a PhD. I know that's gonna be at least half a decade. It doesn't work that way. Within a year, you can move to a different role. I was an application scientist for a little over a year. And then I knew I wanted to get into more product commercialization in terms of the messaging, marketing communications, et cetera. Um, and then I wanted to go from there to business development. You can do this too, but you won't know until you get that exposure. So get into this role because you get the high pay, you get the respect, you get the autonomy, you have the freedom, it's in demand, and it will give you exposure to all the other roles that you're considering. Uh, it's really a no-brainer. And here's the career progression. You can say, you know, if you love it, you can continue to move up vertically, but you can very easily get into R&D if you happen to miss that very easily get into the commercialization side, very easily get into business development as well as many other roles. So can you talk about this fluidity, Alex, and why it's such a great transition point for PhDs? Yeah, it is the perfect entry point into industry for someone coming out of academia. Um, I am so happy that I kind of stumbled upon it and then just went with it. Um, so you can move within the same company as Isaiah had mentioned. Um, staying there. Usually people stay in the FAS or TAS roles for, you know, three to five years if they're high travel positions, just because they get tired of traveling that much. And then they can go into management and, you know, then take care of the newly blossoming team under them. Um, sometimes, you know, there isn't that management position within your company. So you could always move to another company that's starting up, you know, a new FAS wing or TAS wing that needs to get started. But you can also take all of these roles in or all of these things that you've learned from the application scientist role and use them in different parts of the company. So as we kind of alluded to, this role interacts with almost every aspect of the business outside of the C-suite at this point. So you can dip your toes and say, hey, well, I think R&D might be good. Let me try to hop on more R&D calls. Or maybe marketing is super exciting to you. You didn't realize how much you enjoyed it until you got a little taste of it. So you can move in the same company out to these other um, departments, or you can move to a new company and do that for them. Um, one of the most common moves that application scientists make is to the sales role because it has a higher earning potential, but then they also already have that technical know-how and all that does is make you a better salesperson because you can talk science, but you can also then try to sell the customer what they need. Yeah, well said. And this is a rare role where it's not limiting your career path. Now, of course, 
any career path you get into an industry, you can pivot and move to different careers. It happens all the time. But if you get into, you know, um, you know, it's very different than like a data scientist role. You get into that role and you're on a very clear path. It's a big decision and it's very, it has a very uh, restrictive and specific uh, hiring process because of it. Application scientist role, they're not looking for you to commit forever to staying in that role. It is a transitionary role, which means you can get into it easier given your background and they expect you to transition into other roles. They know, especially for PhDs, that it's going to give you exposure. It's an incredible role. Like if you've ever considered doing a industry postdoc, I talk to people that consider this all the time and I'm like, get into an application scientist position instead. You'll get paid a full high wage. You'll get exposure to everything in business and they'll actually keep you on in that company afterwards into any of these other variety of roles. Getting into an application scientist role makes you more likely to get hired at that same company or other company into business development, R&D, uh, marketing sales, any position. It's not. It's one of the few that is a gateway uh, job for sure. And I'm saying this because a lot of you, I know you're stuck trying to, oh, I got to figure out the exact right role. Get into this role. I had the same problem. I was not sure where to go. Uh, I was considering all these different types of jobs. Some of them sounded great. And then I had four or five options. I had, uh, you know, there was like the choice effect. You had too many choices. I was looking at dozens of different roles. And then I got into this one because I heard this message from somebody who was in that, who was in the role before me. They said, it's a transitionary role. You get into it and they expect you to move on. In fact, they facilitate it. They want you to go on and then after you're an FAS and get into R&D because then you bring all that field knowledge to R&D. Or they want you to step up and get into business development, which is similar to FAS, but at a higher level once you have more business exposure. So this is, this is why I'm such a huge advocate for this role. Now, you got about five minutes left. I do want to show you this. Uh, it's very similar to what we just looked at. It is this gateway role that you can get into many other different career paths, right? And there's lots of different titles under R&D or marketing sales, business development. We're just showing a few. As an application scientist or specialist or engineer, you'll be the first on the list for any of these internal openings or any from other companies as well. Now, as far as the steps to get hired, this is where we're going to have to close. Last question, Alex, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see people make when they try to get into the application scientist role now that you've you know, been on the other end of the table and talked to job candidates? The biggest thing is people are scared to network and they think, you know, they're going to get these references by magically sitting and not doing anything. They think somebody will reach out to them and it'll be perfect because they have the perfect CV or LinkedIn profile or resume. It is not like that. Maybe recruiters might reach out to you, but if you want those high quality jobs, you need to put the time in networking. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, it's COVID, there aren't networking events. Well, I was in a very tiny town during my graduate school career. And there were 30,000 people in this town, 25,000 were undergrads, Yes. six hours in any direction from a major city by driving. So I did not attend any in-person networking events. Obviously this was pre-COVID, um, but I did all of my networking on LinkedIn, online, you know, talking to the reps that came into the lab. I even got some interviews from the FASs that were coming to work on our equipment from their companies. But you need to put that effort in. And I understand reaching out the first time is difficult. Um, you can put your scripts into the Facebook group and we can definitely help you out with that. But once you become more comfortable and um, things will be easier for you and you'll be sending out five, 10 messages every week, just trying to get informational interviews and learning about the whole organization of whatever company you're looking at. But you need to put the effort in and you're not going to get a quality job without that. So it's pretty much as much as you put into it, that's what you're going to get out of it. This takes us to the end of this show. You can learn about this program and all of our programs at CheekyScientist.com. If you are new to your job search, you don't know which position's right for you, you can go to PhDsGetHired.com. That's plural, PhDs, 
gethired.com to learn more about our flagship program, the Cheeky Scientist Association that has helped thousands of PhDs around the world get hired. It'll train you on the basics of your job search and help you find the right position for you. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code Cheeky Radio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com, PhDs. G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type PhDsGetHired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's CheekyRadio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely, you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D. Dot com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button and click on it and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees, nobody else offers this. phdsgethired.com, use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD and remember that knowledge is power and your network is your net worth.